when we're talking about um, this thing called love, uh, it's a big concept, like one that which every year when we journey through Advent and I think about what is it that we're going to talk about with love, I, I keep getting drawn back to this passage because no words can adequately describe the kind of love with which God loves his people. And so we just keep coming back to this passage again and again to kind of plumb the depths over and over again to figure out how it is that God has so loved his people. If you're new to the Grove, or perhaps we've forgotten, we are journeying through Advent. And as we're journeying through Advent, our, our, our theme this year is cradle and crown. We're looking at the birth. In years previous, we have really solely looked at the birth. But this year, we wanted to infuse our hearts with the longing, the continual longing of the coming of Jesus, not just as a baby in a cradle, but as a man, as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings with a crown. And when he comes, he will make all things new. And as this passage just talked about, that can cause us great fear if we're looking at Jesus coming back because he will destroy his enemies. That's the promise in Revelation 19. That God is the God of love. Not just the God who lays in a manger, but that God as well, who will come, who is faithful and true, will ride on a white horse, will open his mouth and slaughter his enemies by the millions. That God is love. So when we start talking about love, man, it's just challenging for us. It's challenging for me. And so I love this passage because it says, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what love is like, look at what God has done for us. It's not just what he will do, but what he has already done. This passage, this candle of love reminds us, it starts off actually with this, with this command for us, right? Let us love one another. And if you like me, just find that to be very difficult. Like I just find loving one another to be very hard. Even those that I love the most, it's just hard for me to take the time out of my day to love them. This week I did it like well once for 20 minutes when I had lunch with my oldest daughter. I like haven't had lunch with her in a couple of years, but it's like it's fifth grade. I'm losing my chances. I need to go and make sure that I spend some time with her, which happened and then my middle child goes, ooh, you coming with me next? No. No, there's a limit to this love. It just, it, there's, there is something that makes it so difficult for me to continually pour out love. It's interesting because love is the thing that makes us distinct from everyone else. God's people are made distinct by God's love in us. That's the thing that people will look at us and they'll go, that's the thing, love. But they go, that, those people right there, they belong to Jesus. It's interesting though, because love can't be seen. You cannot see it. It's something that you, you there's, it's like I can see the wreath. It's clearly that's a wreath. But love is something that's intangible. It's ethereal. And yet God says it is obvious in God's people. Or is it? See, I think for us, we have to first understand what love is so that we can truly make it obvious to the world, but also, as we're going to end today, so that we don't live in fear. 
So what is love? Let me put this definition before you. Definition that I came across uh, many moons ago, but is it an emotion? Is it an action? Is it a noun? Is it a verb? And my answer is yes, all of that. But love is this. Love is seeking the good of another at whatever cost to yourself. Love is seeking the ultimate good of another at whatever cost to yourself. Inherent in that definition is the reality that it will cost you something to love someone else. So when I go and I have lunch with my oldest, it's going to cost me some time. It's going to cost me a phone call to the school. Hey, what time to see? I got to prepare that. I got to have my thoughts towards that. I've got to do some really like tangible things to make this intangible thing obvious. And that's just in a small way. See, John tells us that this love, this seeking the good, the ultimate good of another at whatever cost to myself, flows from God because God is love. That's what it says in verse 8, right? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's who he is. It's not the ultimate expression of who he is because he's also holy. He's also truth. He's also just. The Old Testament says he's jealous, He's, he's a lot of different things, so don't just sum up all of who God is in this one characteristic of love. Instead, he is multifaceted in who he is, but God is love. The adverse, though, is not true. Love is not God. God is love, but love is not God. And why I'm putting this before you, not for the first time, but maybe the second or third time to make this thing distinct for us is because we get this so confused in our culture. We think love is, that, is when people don't disagree with us. So when we have a statement or we have an opinion and someone disagrees with that, we might first go, man, I, I thought you loved me just because we disagree. Or perhaps we don't support someone like they want to be supported and they go, well, I thought you loved me. Or when we question someone, hey, are you sure you want to do that? I thought you loved me and supported me. Why are you questioning me on this? It may be that your lack of support, it may be that you're questioning someone else is the greatest expression of love that you could give them. Because it's, again, someone else's ultimate good at whatever cost to yourself. So today we live in a world, and, and, and Eddie prayed it beautifully, we live in a world where we love things on Facebook and Instagram and GroupMe, and then we also love our mom or our wife or our husband. And those, those two words are the same words in English, but in, in, in the New Testament language, it's, there's at least three or four different words for love, not to mention Old Testament language. So when we talk about love, that's what we mean. It's seeking the ultimate good of another at whatever cost to yourself. And so right now, you're probably thinking, if God is love and yet love is not God, I'm, I'm a little confused by that. Well, let me throw a little bit more in there. I think we get confused a lot of times when we get into circumstances and we go, well, how could a God of love do this? How could a God of love allow this? And what we're doing when we say that is we're redefining love, we're redefining God based on our circumstances, based on whether or not we got what we wanted, based on whether or not our dreams have been fulfilled. And the reality is we have to look at what love is by looking at what God has done. Little deep end to start this, but I'm trying to get us to reorient our minds around who God is 
and what he has done. God is love, it's who he is, and whatever he does shows you the kind of God he is. So if God is love, then everything he does is loving, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it, so to speak, doesn't work out, even when our circumstances are stormy or rocky, God still is doing something out of a character of love. So for us, Advent is a time of longing for God to break through the darkness. Advent is a, a time of longing for God's presence, which we'll celebrate tomorrow night as we look at John, uh, uh, the first chapter of John. We are longing for him, for his presence, and for his love to be known upon the earth. And yet God is longing for us to bring forth his love upon the earth, not just through his son, but through his sons and his daughters. That's you and me. So with that good definition in mind of seeking the ultimate good of another at whatever cost to ourselves, let's understand who we are and why we, are, we ought to love. So for us, we have to understand that this, this command for us, let us love one another, is actually impossible if we skip over the first word. That we are the beloved of God. It's who God says that we are. He is reshaping our identity as the deeply loved by God. That is a term that is really affectionate in the New Testament. When the New Testament writers talk about my beloved, they are, they are using the highest affection that they could use to write to one another. So when God calls that for us, it's not just an affectionate term. It is a term that should transform us. You ought to love one another. And if I'm if I'm not thinking about me being the beloved of God, I'm going to muster up a lot of willpower that won't last. That won't last past 20 minutes to where my middle child gets to me and goes, am I next? And I go, no, I got nothing left for you. But if I realize that I am the beloved of God, it's who I am, then what I do will naturally flow out of who I am. God is saying to us with this first word in this passage, beloved, this is who you are. You are the beloved of God, the ones on whom the love of God rests. You might say to yourself, why is that important? Because identity comes before our behavior. It precedes our behavior. You will never love others without first knowing how richly loved you are in Christ. So recently there's been a pastor that has uh, uh, made the news for giving his uh, wife a Lamborghini. You guys know about this? It wasn't me, by the way, if you were, no, don't know anything about that, it was not me. Um, and so he gave his wife a Lamborghini and, and when he um, explained his, uh, his gift to his wife, um, this, like, this is why I kind of follow like, along with these kinds of stories. It's not because of the gift. I don't care what you, that's fine with me. It's how are you going to explain that to people? This is my favorite part. And so when he was explaining this to um, people online, he said this, and I quote, um, don't confuse who I am with what I do. The Bible's saying the exact opposite. Who you are is going to be represented in what you do. If you want to be a loving person, then you should probably do loving things. If you want to be a Christian and follow Jesus, then your life should probably represent someone who says that they love Jesus. Identity and behavior get laid on top of one another in the scriptures. We cannot differentiate and totally draw a line between who I am and what I do. If we do that, we will always excuse sin. And I'm, be clear, I'm not saying that's sin. I'm, that's not for me to say. That's up for Jesus to say. 
But what I am saying is that it's an inaccurate statement to say I can do basically really whatever I want if I re-identify myself as not that. Because he said I'm not a, a pastor in that moment. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. And I would say it's actually wrong. Both of those things are wrong. You're not a pastor. You're not a husband. You're not a dad. You're a blood-bought son or daughter of God. That's who you are. That's your core identity. That's the beloved word that John is telling us right here. So now, if we're blood-bought, purchased, brought into the kingdom, transferred from darkness to light, we can do these things. We can actually do this thing called loving one another. The most impossible thing that I can think about on a daily basis. Now I'm fueled up to be able to obey this command. If I align my identity with what God's telling me to do. If I say I'm not this, then I'll never go and do that. Who we are determines what we do, and God says we are the beloved. See, if God is love and you are, are, are the beloved of God, then loving others ought to be your new language. Look at verse 11 for us, right? 11 right here says, beloved, again, he's addressing us again. Beloved, deeply loved by God. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And if we're not careful, we'll translate that ought word into some guilty conscience. And we're like, oh, I should be doing this. I should be loving other people. But the reality is this, like as someone who, like from the United States, should be speaking English, someone who from Spain ought to speak Spanish, someone from Russia ought to speak Russian. It's who you are. It's just a, a part of your natural outflowing of your identity. We ought to love one another. This is who we are. So it is that Christians ought to love. That's how natural this should be, that it just flows out of us like this new language. You've heard probably of the five love languages, which gets very specific in how you can practically love others. God has so loved us that this should be our language. We should be so fluent in this type of love that it just comes out of us without effort. That's what 1 John 4 is telling us. The problem is it doesn't. Right, I've just, I've just stood before you to say like, I have a difficult time obeying that kind of command, this ultimate command of loving one another. And so John goes on to tell us that the main reason is because we've become blind and we have forgotten how it is that God has loved us. So how is it that God shown, has shown his love to the world? Let's read verses nine and 10. I love the book of 1 John because it just makes hidden things obvious. And so if you just start reading the book of 1 John, you start to see these repetitive words like beloved, beloved. And he, he starts to make things black and white. Oh, if you don't do this, you're a liar. Like we just read that. We probably don't say that in our neighborhood groups. Well, if you don't love, by the way, you're a liar. Oh man, that seems really judgmental, Pete. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> but we didn't get to say that with, with the Apostle John. He kind of has earned the right to tell us some things. And then we have earned the right, because we're the beloved of God, to, to pass on that truth to one another. I love this. Look at what he says right here in verse nine. He says, in this... And he's going to repeat that in verse 10. In this, he says it again in verse 13. By this, 17, by this, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us. It has been obvious. What was hidden is now made clear. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is not a word that we have used this week. Propitiation. And yet this is the way that God says he has loved us. The love of God in Jesus is obvious. It's not hidden. It's obvious in Jesus. If you and I ever lose sight of the kind of love with which you are to love others, look and behold the way that God loved us. Verse 9 says that the Father has sent his only Son into the world so that we might have life. The implication there is that we try to find life in other places besides Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's a daily grind for me to remind myself that life is not found in production. Life is not found in peace. Life is not found in any other thing that I could accomplish or receive except that which was accomplished on my behalf and I'm commanded to receive. The implication is that we don't have life anywhere else. Life cannot be found in any other priority, place, or person except that of Jesus. In verse 10, it says this. Look at what it says in verse 10. Not, this is what love is. In this is love. We want to know what love is? Yes, that the, the Father sent the Son into the world so that we may have life. But also, it's not that you have loved God. Instead, John is reminding us this isn't about how well you love Jesus. This isn't about your performance. This isn't about how well you love others. It's not about how you love God in verse 10. Not that we have loved God. No, instead, that he loved us. Verse 19 would, would echo this. We love because he first loved us. Love is defined not by how obedient we are, not by how faithful we are, because we're gonna disappoint each other, right? I mean, that's the, that's the harsh reality of imperfection and of living on this side of the garden of Genesis 3 is that we will be an ultimate source of disappointment with one another. And so when that happens, we can lament, we need to forgive, but ultimately we are reminded that our ultimate hope is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. The love of God was made obvious, made evident by sending his son to be the propitiation of our, for our sins. God's love is not a secret. It is absolutely obvious before that. And yet we forget. We need to come again and again to the gathering of the saints. We need to go again and again to our neighborhood groups. We need to go again and again and rub shoulders with our brothers and sisters to remind us of this good news, this obvious love of God that Jesus died and was a propitiation for our sins. And so if we, if we forget those things, John is telling us to look at Jesus, to look at, at those whom he's changed, at one another. This is the story that we rehearse again and again, week in and week out, day in and day out, that we have been enslaved to sin, Romans 6 says, dead in sin, Ephesians 2 says, enemies of God, Colossians 1 would say. Early on in our journey as a church plant, we, um, I got a phone call. I got a phone call from a pastor across town. He goes, hey man, do you need a building? And I was like, I don't, we're good. We, we have our spot and we're fine. And he goes, no, no, if you, if, you, if you use our building, we'll give it to you. I'm sorry, what? Say again? 
if you use our building, we'll give it to you. And I was like, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm listening. Let me, uh, let me, let's have lunch. And he's like, dude, we just want you to, to just come. And if, if you want to use this building, we would love for you to use this building. And if it's a good fit, we will, we'll give you the building. So I'm like, as a church planter, I'm all ears. So we go over there several times at this church. And the first message that I preached, I wanted to give them the gospel. First message that I preached was out of Colossians 1. Some of you who were there during that time are laughing and smiling at me. Because this is what happened. When I preached through Colossians 1 and it says, you are hostile in mind to God. You are his enemies in word and in deed. And even in your mind, you're thinking about ways to offend him. And I may have said some other things to kind of just hit that point home. And I said, you believe that, don't you? And the worship leader was sitting in the front seat and he goes, nope. Big old, he had a big old cowboy hat on, big old flat brand hat on. He goes, absolutely not. I do not believe that. And I knew what I was getting into. Someone who believes the good news without the bad news. That we are deeply, deeply rebellious against God. We are his enemies apart from the reconciliation that comes through his son Jesus. Enslaved to sin doesn't mean you get to choose something different. You're enslaved to it. It's what you do. Even in your best days, Romans 6 would say, it is what you do. Even your righteous acts would say in Isaiah are filthy before a holy God. We're, we're dead to sin, Ephesians 2 would say, so, that, so much that we're dead that God has to, who is rich in mercy, make us alive. The promise of Ezekiel 36 that he would put a new heart in us gets fulfilled when he sends the spirit to regenerate us, Titus 3 would say. We were though enemies of his. While we were still sinners, he died for us. See, God's love is obvious, but we forget because we forget how bad we were apart from Christ. He saw us as dead, as enslaved to sin, as people postured to be his enemies again and again. And then his response was to resurrect our hearts, to purchase our freedom, and to make friends out of enemies. John 15 says, you are no longer slaves. You're my friends. Jesus was sent not just to live a good life as a good teacher, but for the one purpose of death. We think about the baby in a cradle. And Mary, did you know? Yes. She knew. <laughs> Says it in the Bible. And so did Jesus. And yet he, 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 he limited himself in only one way, and that was to become human. And for all of eternity, he will be human. He came to be one of us. To save us. The Bible uses that big word that's easy to stumble over. Propitiation. Propitiation. It's this word, and I want to put a definition before you. It's the act of a person to satisfy the wrath of a deity or a god. And therefore earning the favor of that deity. Now, that's a big word. That's a big definition. It's no wonder they use a difficult word because it's a difficult definition. Keep it up there, because we're going to explain this a little bit. If God's love is obvious, and it's obvious in this way, that God would send the Son to give us life, and then to die to give us propitiation, and this is the way that God's love is obvious, through propitiation? We've got to know what that is. So we don't forget the kind of love with which God has given us, shown us, and then 
commanded us to operate out of for the good and benefit of others at whatever cost to myself. And so, if you don't know this, God's a holy God. He will not uh, be in the company of sin. And so, we, apart from Jesus, before Jesus came into our lives and resurrected our hearts, we stored up wrath for ourselves through sin. Right? We stored up wrath for ourselves. And what Jesus does is he comes in and when he dies on the cross, he satisfies the Father's wrath for us. So when he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He is, he is drinking the full wrath of God for every sin that was committed, has been committed, and will be committed for all time. It's no wonder he felt abandoned by his Father because the wrath of God was being poured out on him. For you, for me, and that should change us. It should wreck us every time we talk about it. That's the reality of the propitiation of Jesus for us. We stored it up, and he took it. And then he does something greater. The, the, the favor that he had, he then freely gives to us. You're, you're, you're unrighteous no more. You take my righteousness. You take my perfection. And you stand before my Father who's mad at me because of you. Now be free. Doesn't that, that change you? Doesn't that make loving others a little more palatable? Not just palatable, but something I'm excited to do. Absolutely it should. That's the first thing that happens. He satisfies the Father's wrath. He gives us his favor. It's captured beautifully by Paul in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that God sends our sins away. He doesn't just pay for our sins. He doesn't just satisfy the wrath of the Father for us. He then sends our sins away. It's called expiation if you really needed to know that. I'm sure there's a great definition in Wayne Grudem's big old fat blue systematic theology. If you don't have that, you should get it. Expiation, sending our sins away. The great promise of Micah in Psalm 103, Micah 7 says this, he will again have compassion on us. Micah, a prophet, written and, and sent to call the people of God back into repentance and restoration. He will again have compassion on us. If you've sinned it all this week, which we all have, we need to hear this word. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You know, they still haven't found the bottom of the ocean. Still, they can't get down there. That's where our sins are. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. By definition, this kind of love is not superficial. It's not sentimental. It's not only emotive. No, this kind of love achieves its goal when it is expressed in action. 
So could you imagine a God who's sitting in heaven, sees what happens in the Garden of Eden, has no plan, hasn't orchestrated it all, and has just no plan to fix it, and just goes, man, Adam, you really stumped me on this one, buddy. This whole thing of sin is difficult. Huh? That's not the plan of God. Could you then also imagine a God who has a plan and then doesn't want to do it? He says, I know how to fix this, and I know you're in dire straits. You're all gonna go to hell, which will be a bad place forever and ever. You know, I love you guys, and you guys deserve this, and so I'm just gonna let you have what you deserve. Could you imagine that, God? You know, instead, of the, the love of God isn't just an emotion that says, I love you guys. It is an emotion that finds its fulfillment in action, in doing. Don't believe me? Just watch. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did something about it. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I love how the, 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 the gospel and the letter writer of John does this. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. First John three sixteen through 18 would say this. Put this up for us, Eddie. First John three sixteen and 18 through 18. By this, again, that repetition. You want to know how love, the love of God is made manifest? By this. We know what love is, that he laid down his life. He did something. He didn't just say something. He laid down his life for us. So then, just like someone who from Russia speaks Russian, so a Christian ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's, good, uh, the world's goods, possessions, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. Hmm. Don't we need to hear that? We just need to hear that we're little children in the faith. We haven't, we haven't done anything. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not be a people of the Grove Church who only affirm John 3.16. Let us be a people that are driven by 1 John 3.16. For Jesus and for good. Let us receive the sacrificial love of God for us and let us sacrificially love those who are in Fort Bend County and those who are in South Asia. Who are on literally Plantation Drive and those who are in Zimbabwe. For those of us who are in Richmond, Rosenberg, Katy, Sugarland, and in Chiang Mai, Thailand. See, these are the partners that we have that aren't just here in our neighborhood, but also sent out to the nations. South Asia, Zimbabwe, Thailand. See, this is why we put before you our end of year giving Week in and week out, and we say, look, we're just trying to, we're trying to raise five grand to send with our team to go to South Asia to, to literally clothe them, to literally give them food so that we can truly live out what the Bible says to live out. This isn't about creating space for us on a Sunday morning, but it is about creating space for the gospel to take root in orphans' lives. That's what we should be about. That's what this kind of love does for us. If it's obvious, then it's made obvious through action. And I think for me, I think a lot of the times one of the reasons why I don't love the way God calls me to love is because I'm constantly thinking about what is this going to cost me? Convenience, effort, preparation, 
something else that I think is more important. And God calls us back to the cross again and again. And instead of asking what this is going to cost us, and it will cost us something, we ought to be rooted in this question. What happens when we love like this? What happens when the people of God love like Jesus has loved us? See, this is a little bit of a preview for what's gonna happen in John 13 come January, and I can't wait to preach that message. I'm not gonna preach that today. But it's the same thing. It's the same message repeated over and over again, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Why is this so important to God? What is he hoping to accomplish on the earth? I'm glad you're asking. Verses 16 through 18. So we have come to know and believe that love, the love that God has for us, again, God is love and whoever abides in him abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with judgment and punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This kind of love, God's promise is, this kind of love drives out fear. If you just take an inventory in any given week to figure out like, how much has fear driven me this week? Fear of rejection causes me to do things with the relationships that I may not want or, or, or look back on and be like, that's probably not a good thing to do. Fear of failure makes me drive beyond the point of my human limitations to where God actually says you need to rest. Remember the Sabbath day. Find your rest in Jesus. But my fear of failure pursues me and therefore I pursue way beyond my own limits. Fear of shame makes me take no risks at all. Fear of punishment makes it to where I don't even want to even speak up against someone who's doing something wrong. See, fear drives us more than we might realize. The Bible is saying perfect love drives your fear out. It's not just any kind of love that will drive fear out, only perfect love. Verse 12, verse 17, verse 18. And I think up until about three or four years ago, I had this idea of perfect love wrong. I thought that was the love of God. And it is. But this is actually not a standard of love, that it's perfect. It's this kind of love that finds its completion. I want you to hear the difference. This isn't a perfect love. This is a love that is seeking to be fulfilled on the earth, finding its completion on the earth. That's the kind of love, this completed love, this perfected love upon the earth, that's the kind of love that drives out fear. Well, if that's true, what does that even look like? The end goal here is this whole thing is that we may not have fear. And this love that God is driving towards that will drive out fear, this love that accomplishes its goal, it reaches its fulfillment, is not just when God demonstrated his love by sending his son, but when his sons and daughters demonstrate his love, not just in word, but in deed. I mean, the summary of the Christian life is basically this. You are deeply loved by God. As a result, you should love him. 
As a result, abide in him. That's what this middle part says, right? Verse 13, by this, again, we know that we abide in him and he in us because given, he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, who God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love God has for us, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Christian message, God loves you, love him back, abide, remain, dwell, set up shop in the realm of the love of God. Don't forget about it. You'll never move on from it. You never graduate from that kind of love. And if you're truly interested in following Jesus in all of life, based on that love, then you'll love Jesus. And the way that he says we love Jesus is if we obey him, we follow him, in obedience. So how do we do that? How does this perfect love get, get find its fulfillment upon the earth? And if you're like me, I'm asking myself, okay, so you want me to receive the love of God, abide in that love, and then I'm the instrument by which that love is going to be perfected on the earth, accomplished on the earth. So then who do I need to love? Okay, I'm good if I love the brothers, like the sisters. I, I can love the people in my own church. I can even love people from other churches. Now what? Now, is there a limit there? Do I have to love other people as well? How about my enemies, Lord? Got to love my enemies? And Jesus would echo these words out of Matthew 5 for us who have a hard time to love our enemies. Matthew 5, 43 through 46 say this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see that? You prove that you are sons and daughters of God in heaven when we love like God loved. We bring that perfect love of God down and find its fulfillment on the earth. For he, look at, what, look at the way God loves. He has his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Like, could you imagine if it was so obvious whose God's love rained down on that when it literally rained, it didn't rain in your yard? And you were like, what in the world, man? Like your neighbors got rain all up in their yard and you got no rain in your yard. No, he rains upon the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then he says this in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward is that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? See, for me, it's easy to love those that I know will love me. It's easy to love those that I, I, I'm supposed to love, like, like my family, like my church. But it's really, I'd say, impossible to love those that would be categorized in enemies without first receiving the love of God. Love that is to become perfect. Love that finds its fulfillment. Love that has no limit on the earth also has no limit in its inconvenience to self or its benefit for our enemy. God's perfect love came to us, remade our identity from enemy to beloved, and then flowing out of us brings God's love upon the earth to completion, to perfection, 
and reaching in its ten, in, intended goal. So what does this do for us? Verse 17 and 18. This love that's longing to be perfected upon the earth, not just from God to his people, but also from his people to the world and to our enemies. When that love is perfected with us, when it is, it says this, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected. In love. What's he saying here as we end is this. If you fear God's coming, if you fear the judgment that is to come with Jesus, then you have not experienced the self-sacrificing, ultimate good-seeking, wrath-satisfying, sin-throwing-into-the-ocean kind of love of God. If you had, and if I had, loving others would be just a normal language for us. Like a natural, like, it'd be natural like a fish naturally swims in water, like a bird naturally flies in the air, so would it be so natural for us to love one another. And God's plan upon the earth of loving others is not only through his son, but through his sons and through his daughters. So we near the end of Advent with this view of love in mind. And I ask you, could you imagine what it would look like to love without a fear of rejection? Could you imagine what it would look like to love others without fear of what they might think or if they're gonna misunderstand you? Could you imagine what it would look like to love another without failing and fearing to fail to communicate the right words? That's often my deal. Like when I try and love somebody practically, it just gets awkward. I once gave somebody a pair of shoes because I knew they needed a pair of shoes. I was like, I love shoes. I gotta go. Bye. It was the most awkward thing on the the planet. It was bad. Thank God that person's still my friend. Without failing to communicate the right words, can you imagine what this kind of love would be like without wondering if God will accept your acts of love towards him and towards others due to its imperfect motives in your heart? How would knowing that God has fully accepted you because of God's propitiation change how you view him, his coming, and his mission to love others as he's loved you? Let's pray together. Lord, there are days where fear arrests us. There are days where fear becomes an overriding reality to our lives. Fear becomes so difficult for us to overcome that we need to be reminded again and again of just how it is. You've come for us. You've loved us. And so I pray, Lord, that Somehow, in only the way that your spirit can do, would you remind us of this kind of love, this obvious love in Jesus, this this wrath-satisfying love, this freedom-purchasing love, so that we can then speak our natural language of love to one another. Not in a sentimental way, not in a I totally agree with everything you're doing way. That doesn't matter in a way that is transformative. I'm gonna seek the ultimate good of you at whatever cost to myself. 
This is the kind of love that a good marriage is made of. This is the kind of love that good parenting is made of. This is the kind of love that, that generosity gets born out of. So would you help us remember these things so that we would not fear, not just not living like you want us to live on the earth, but we would not fear judgment. It's not that we have anything to fear when you come back, Lord. But it becomes even more obvious that we have nothing to fear when we put love to work. So would you help us do these things and would you help us remind us of what you've come for? To give us life, not to condemn us, not to say, shame, shame, I know your name, but to bring life in us, to birth new life in us, and then to help us live the life abundant. <laughs> remind us of these things as we sing. Remind us of these things as we respond. It's in Christ's name. Amen.